Isaiah was caught in a confusing world. When we pick up this story in chapter 6 in Isaiah, uh, we are given some new information as, as the readers. The year that King Uzziah died. That was a challenging time for Israel. It was one of these times where things began to be questioned. What's happening to us? Why, where is our world heading? Does God care about us anymore? Does he even know what's happening to us? See, the words, in the year that King Uzziah died, would have struck a pretty intense chord with those who heard this for one of the first times. You see, Uzziah was a king in ancient Israel that, that during his reign, they experienced, the people of Israel experienced a pretty good life. Things were kind of comfy cozy. The economy was doing pretty well. The, 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 the situation with their neighbors was okay, and, and the people in Israel still had the freedom to, to live their own lives, to make their own decisions. Things were going pretty good, at least from the people's perspective. But the, ki the year that King Uzziah died, things began to take a downward spiral. Political battles raged. The nation of Israel began to be divided and be dealing with the, the rising problem of Assyria. See, Assyria was the, the powerful neighbors of, of Israel to the east. Conversations among the political parties were, do we have to engage in conversations with them? Do we, do we just bow to their power and send them tribute? Or do we fight to stay free? Jotham was the new king on the throne after Uzziah died. And Jotham was not as strong as Uzziah was. The trust in leadership in Israel was not the same. Would he be able to navigate this tension between Israel and Assyria? See, trust was an issue. And there wasn't much trust for Israel during the time that Isaiah was prophesying. And scholars are quick to point out that during Isaiah's prophecy, the nation of Israel was a little bit like a wandering dog. They didn't know where to give their allegiance to. And they didn't have a good king to look to. Who is this new king anyway? It's a good question. For a while now, Israel was being warned, though, of what would happen if they continued to ignore God, to ignore his law to ignore their calling to be a people of God, to live according to his will. Many people in Israel were forgetting the promises that God made to them and how he called them to live as a separate people, holy and pleasing to the Lord. They were called to pay attention to him and to trust him to lead them, and they weren't doing that. See, Isaiah finds himself in a challenging spot, in a divided world, where people are being swayed this way and that, searching for something to give their allegiance to, something to buy into, something to hold onto that will save them. It sounds a lot like our world today, doesn't it? You know, we don't live in 740 BC, but we can easily find ourselves in the story of Isaiah. Political instability, divided allegiances, searching for something to hold on to that we can trust. We, just like those in Isaiah's time, are surrounded by things in life, visual images, 
people, products, relationships that are asking us for us to trust them. This is all you need, we read on billboards. You aren't happy because you don't have this. Trust me, you need this. You know, we don't think of these things in our world, billboards, commercials, political parties, as things that are asking us to worship them. But in a way, they are. You see, worship is a churchy word, and not something that we often use to describe unreligious things that we do. And the problem with this is that it can create a dualism of sorts. We can think that worship is something that we do on Sunday morning for an hour and a half, and that it doesn't really lead to anything outside of that. Worship happens in church. Life happens outside of church. But worship is really just a fancy word to describe something that we give worth to, something that we give value to. Pastor Tim Keller is, is quick to remind us that worship, he says, is the act of handing over our ultimate value to someone or something in a way that engages our whole being. It's, it's simply an act of handing over ultimate value to something with our whole being. And ultimate, ultimate value, as Keller describes, it, it's just, it just means something that's the most important thing in your life. Worship is what we do to the most important things in our lives. What's a quick way to evaluate some of the things that we give real importance to, ultimate meaning? Well, what do you think about when you don't have anything to think about? That's a pretty good indicator of the things that you value. Doing a mental evaluation of this quickly leads us into, into confession, doesn't it? I found that this week when I ran over that, that quote by Tim Keller, that worship is handing over ultimate value to something that engages our whole being, and I was reminded of the things that I often put a lot more value than I should. For me, something that's been an ongoing struggle is to put too much value into Sunday mornings. Oh, did people like the sermon? Oh, was, did, what was the feeling that I got after worship? Did, did enough people send me emails of thanks versus emails of, why did you say that? But the problem is that it can start to take over our lives. When we put value into things that aren't meant to be valued, it begins to rip us apart, doesn't it? As we move through our series on our core values of our church this morning, as you can kind of guess, we're talking about transformative worship. And the description that comes attached to this core value is this. In worship, God's people encounter the king of creation and are called to live according to his kingdom. Worship is a public event in which God's people declare his reign and by which we are transformed into a people who point to and demonstrate the good news of Scripture by our whole lives. That's such a powerful core value, isn't it? A public event which we declare his reign with our outside voices, and by which we are transformed into people who outside of church, point to and demonstrate the good news of Scripture, that, that our world is being redeemed 
through Christ with our whole lives. See, that's a different story that this core value is asking us, calling us to see. Notice that there's no use of the word church in this core value. Now, this account of the vision that Isaiah has, where he sees the Lord, sends him into a life of faithful worship. I wonder if these uh, first few words of Isaiah, the, in the year that King Uzziah died, is a, is a reminder to us that worship happens in the thick of things. Worship is a public event because it happens in the midst of our daily lives, the ins and outs of the things that we do every single day. We can thank Isaiah for this testimony of transformative worship. There's a now famous quote by an author and philosopher named David Foster Wallace who reminds us of not just the fact that we worship in all areas of our life, but that it has transformative power on us. And he reminds us this. He says this, Because here's something weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning, real value in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, Foster Wallace says, and you'll feel weak and afraid, and you will need more power all the time over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, your mind, what you know, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid all the time, a fraud, always being worried about being found out. See, what I love about this quote is that it, it reminds us, from a man who's not a Christian, it reminds us that what we put real value into changes us, whether we see it or not. We, like Isaiah, feel the tension and the temptation of different things in our world pulling us, asking us, begging us to put value and meaning into them, each having a different story of success that draws us in. The story of career has a different story of success than the story of, of, of a family and successful family. But look back to Isaiah. Because what changes in his life is that he's brought into a different story. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's what he says. One Bible scholar I read this week said this, In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the true king. And what happened when Isaiah encountered the king of creation? Not what we would expect. Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
for Isaiah, the first thing he recognizes is that it is impossible for him to be where he is in that moment. He can't see God. Nobody can. As a, as a good Jewish man, Isaiah would have heard stories about others who have encountered similar things to him and with the same fear. He would have remembered the story of Jacob. When Jacob was wrestling with an angel throughout the night and, and, and all night long wrestling with this angel, and then he, he gets to a point where it's daybreak, the sun's about to come up, and the angel says to him, I have to leave you. And Isaiah at that point, and Jacob at that point realizes why. It's because it's God. And no man, no person can look upon God and live. Or he might remember the, the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, where, where God shows his character to him in, in the book of Exodus. and In chapter 33, where, where God says, you know, I can't, you, can, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And so God hides Moses in the corner of a rock until his glory is passed by and lets Moses catch a glimpse of him, the backside. Nobody can see God and live. Why? Because of sin. Because we can't see God's face because our brokenness is too great. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve first ate that fruit, when they decided to do things on their own, they created a barrier. Deciding to do things their own way created a barrier between them and God that we experience today. When we, we are broken people and we cannot experience perfection, holiness, the holy, holy, holiness of God and live. In this way, Isaiah's response makes sense. He knows he's a sinner and he knows that he is seeing God and he knows that those two things don't go together. Isaiah reached the end of himself. But transformation happens when we reach the end of ourselves. That's the really fascinating part of this story here, is that, that really when things start to turn around is when Isaiah reaches the end of himself. And God speaks. That's when transformation begins. The text tells us that one of the seraph flew to Isaiah with a, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And this is symbolism. And, and with it, he touched his mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. God deals with Isaiah's sin problem. Transformative worship happens when we, like Isaiah, come to the end of ourselves and are met with the forgiveness, the atonement of our sin. See, the thing is, though, we can tend to think of worship differently. We can think of worship as something that we do. We go to church on Sunday morning. We sing praises to God. We listen to his word. And we do, we try to do what he says. It's easy to think of worship as something that we can actually do in order to earn the approval of God. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves it when we sing. 
He smiles upon us as, as we come together as his people and sing praises to his name. But no matter how loud we sing, no matter how many times we come to church together, it does nothing to solve our sin problem. Transformative worship doesn't happen without God speaking into our deepest problems. I remember when I was younger and there were stickers for Sunday school attendance. And at the end of the year, the one with the most amount of stickers got candy. It's an interesting image to think about worship. How many times do we often think about it that way? Oh, I, I've, I've come to church often. I, I, I'm a good person, and God's good to good people, and so I think I'm okay. But interesting that when Isaiah encounters the king of creation, he isn't thinking about his Sunday morning attendance. He isn't thinking about the best part about himself. In fact, he actually points to the best part about himself as the worst part about himself. Isaiah is a prophet. He's an eloquent speaker. And yet he's, the first thing he says is, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. His lips were likely, as, as most scholars will say, likely the thing that he was most proud of. And yet that's the thing that was the dirtiest when he encountered God. Because transformation happens when we come to the end of ourselves. It's pretty easy to admit that we don't have it all together. But can we get to the place where we admit that even the thing that we think we have together is not together? That's the place where transformation happens. That's the place where, where, where God really starts to change things for Isaiah. Where he sees that God has taken away the guilt and the sin in his life. And transformation starts to take root. And we see it when God says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? See, God needs somebody to go on a mission. God needs somebody to be his representative to the people of Israel, speaking about the judgment that, that will come upon them if they don't turn to him as the Lord of their lives. And without hearing about the job description, without hearing about the compensation package, or, or the benefits, or the pension, or anything, Isaiah signs up. This goes against what we would say as common sense. You don't sign up for a job without hearing how much you'll get paid for it. Yet Isaiah does it. Why? Because his life has been changed already. Remember, his guilt has been removed. His sins have been forgiven. That's it. He has, he has seen the Lord and lived. What else matters? He knows that the God, the King of creation that he has experienced, is worth giving ultimate value to. And he devotes his life to the cause without hearing any detail about what it actually means. The calling of Isaiah was not something that was glorious or beautiful. He was sent as a prophet to a people who, who, who were so far gone that they wouldn't repent. That's what it means when, when, when uh, there's the list of, you know, these people will be ever hearing but not perceiving all of these things. 
They don't mean that God actually hardened their hearts, but that, that, that they're already so far gone that, that, that there would be no way that they would turn around. And Isaiah is sent to preach a message of repentance, which he does. Turn and believe, and they don't. And Isaiah asks, for how long do I do this? And God says, until everything's gone. Until there's not anything left except for a glimpse of hope. And he does it. His guilt was removed. His sin was atoned for. That's where the transformation took place. And then God sends him into mission as a transformed person. You see, the coal is a symbol. And it points us to somebody else. Because it's nice for us to see that God dealt with Isaiah's sin, but what about us? See, brothers and sisters, when we come together, we encounter a different story too. We encounter the story of God who sent to us Jesus Christ, his only son, who took upon himself not just one person's sin, but the sin of our world. The brokenness, the despair, he took upon himself. You know, we, we read about this in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This came true in Jesus when he took upon himself on the cross our brokenness and cried out in a loud voice when he was dying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was, he was abandoned to die. God had left him, passed him by. You see, Jesus died on the cross so we could hear the same words that Isaiah hears. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And we can be in the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because Jesus Christ was cast out of his presence on the cross. You know, after Jesus died and rose again, ascended into heaven, he gives us his spirit. A spirit of transformation that works in our hearts, continually works in our hearts. Question and answer 17 in the Heidelberg Catechism says that by the power of Jesus Christ's divinity, he bore the weight of God's wrath to earn for us righteousness and life. So how do we receive this? We, like Isaiah, have to come to the end of ourselves before we can truly hand over our allegiance to God. Have we come to the end of ourselves? When we hand over our lives to God, he fills us with his spirit, continually transforming our hearts. And so, so what are some ways that this takes place? Well, you know, we have to pay attention in all of life. In a world of confused values and divided allegiances, God is getting our attention, calling us to transformation in the midst of our busyness. Do we slow down enough to, to ponder, what is God calling me into today? Where is God calling me to repent and believe in him today? Do we see him calling us to trust in him, put faith in him in all areas of our lives? Do we worship publicly and privately? When we gather for worship, we gather to hear a different story. Each part of our liturgy is leading us to see how God is, is 
redeeming our world. We're called, we're invited into this story. Like Isaiah, we, we have to remember that in Christ, coming to the end of ourselves is, is the best place to be. Because we fall into the one who died on our behalf. And who will bring us home. He will never leave us or forsake us. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving to us stories of transformation in the word that was given to us. Lord, we thank you for Isaiah and his message to Israel. We thank you for the, the vision that, that he received from you and how we can look at it and, and see how you changed his life and how you're inviting us to that same transformation through Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would Help us to hand over things that are hard to hand over in our lives. Places of allegiance that, that we hold on to too tightly, Lord. Help us to trust you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.